Amen. As you guys have a seat, I'd love for you to thank the band for leading us this morning. They worked really hard to make that happen. All right. Uh, 17 of you appreciated them, and I appreciate you. Open your Bibles to Esther chapter 4 this morning. It is good to be with you as we continue our study through the book of Esther uh, for such a time as now as what we have entitled this five weeks and, and the reason for that is we believe that as we come to the conclusion of the summer and we begin to head into our new school year and we find our rhythm and our routine with jobs and our kids being back in school and the blessing of our kids being back in school that we as a people get to process together, okay, what does God have for us now? And when I look at his word, what would he have me to do? Uh, the other night, if you're unfamiliar with, with my family, that. My wife doesn't necessarily need me all of the time. So her sister had a baby and they decided they were going to make a road trip to the New Orleans area to see said baby. I did not go with them about 24 hours in. And we all know this, when the family's gone, there's about 18 hours where you're like, this is restful. And then you're thinking, this is eerily creepy in my house when there's nothing happening except me sitting here watching Netflix and or reading my Bible. And as we're sitting there, I call Hope and I let her know that I miss them and, and, and all this. So I call one of the families from our church and I said to them, will you guys go to dinner with me? So I go to dinner with a family that is not my own, just me and them. And if you are unfamiliar, the Marikeens are here at our church and I never said their name correctly, but they are actually out this week. We're actually taking care of their dog as well. Uh, so the trade-off was they would have dinner with me and we would take care of their dog. I think I lost. So we're there having dinner. Their children are very different than my children. Uh, they're incredibly quiet and my children, I think it's introversion versus extroversion. Uh, and while we're having dinner together, Amy at one point looks at me and she said, so why Esther? Excuse me, I didn't know we were breaking this down tonight at, at Center Court Pizza. Why Esther? There's a quote on your worship guide. You, you can look at it. Mike Cosper said it in, in a book that he's written in, about faith in a world gone mad. And he said, Esther's story is our story. We live in a world where God sometimes seems hidden. And where identifying as his people comes with a great deal of risk. But others have come before us. We look at this story and we see that this story is very much like ours. We have ten chapters in the book. The tenth chapter is not even really a full chapter. It's just a few verses. God is never mentioned. It tells us something pretty magnificent about our God. Our God is so great, He does not have to be mentioned to matter. So we look and we walk through chapter 3. We get to chapter 4... But before we can look into chapter 4, I want to remind us from some of the things that we got to experience as we read through chapter 3 because I read through it and you read alongside of me. But I want to make sure that I point out a few things as far as time goes just to give you a rough timeline of what's happening in the book of Esther from chapter 1 to chapter 2 is a span of about 4 years. From chapter 2 to chapter 4 is another span of 4 years. So very unlike the stories of Disney princesses that we're familiar with, we read the story of Esther and we see that it is over a lengthy period of time. 
And we are reminded as we look into the Bible at any point that there are certain texts that are there that are descriptive. That God has given them them to us so that we can follow along with the narrative of the Bible and follow the story that's there. And there are certain texts that are prescriptive. So God gives us a story in descriptive things and he prescribes for us what we should do with his whole story in other texts. So when we look into chapter 3, you've got Haman or Haman, depending upon how you pronounce that. And he's paying the equivalent of 32 million dollars to King Xerxes' war effort. From the, and he is going to do so from the plunder and murder of Jewish people because Mordecai will not obey the simple command the king has given that everyone should bow when they see Haman. Now, if you don't know much about the world that Jesus lived in or the world that those who lived even before Jesus in his earthly life lived... Bowing is a very unique concept in the Bible, and we don't really do it. I don't, no one today, when you walked in, you saw someone and you bowed to them. That's not part of our world. Uh, it's similar, though, to where my, my wife lives. She's from uh, South Mississippi. That's the deep South. She has reminded me, I'm from Tennessee, that that's not actually the South. I might as well be living in Pennsylvania. But uh, we have interactions that have proven to be very unique for us as a couple in regard to the way that we see honor and respect. And one of the things that I learned very quickly was that when I talk to her mother and father, I, I am to address them as Mr. and Mrs. by their first name when they give you permission to not call them by the last name. So it's very, so their last name is Tyson. My father's name is Mike Tyson. My father-in-law's name is Mike Tyson. So do with that what you will. Uh, and Susan is her mother's name. So when I see them, I call them Mr. Mike and, and Miss Susan. And I do so, and honestly, for the first, oh, ten years, it was very difficult for me because I was thinking, it's like I'm driving Miss Daisy all the time around here. But it's a sign of honor, a show of respect, and it is cultural. In the cultural situation that we find in the Bible, the notion of bowing to someone when you see them, that's just expected. Here's Haman's situation. People would bow to him when they saw him just because they happened to see him. But he wanted to change the script even more so because the position of power that Xerxes had given him so that people would not just bow when they see him, but because it was an official declaration of the king, you were to bow when you saw Haman, which meant that you should be looking for Haman. Find him. Notice him. And here we see sin manifested in an acceptable way. None of us would ever say when we considered Haman, okay, bowing in front of someone is sin. But that small picture of sin, we eventually will see escalate into him wanting to wipe out the entirety of the Jewish people. Because one man will not bow when he sees him. He is going to kill the Jewish people, and the king is going to have his funds to go to war. And here's the saddest part to me about the whole story in Exodus chapter 3. It does not seem that King Xerxes, or King Ahasuerus as it is pronounced in the book of Esther, which sounds like a dinosaur, it does not seem that Xerxes even knows or cares who these people are that are going to be wiped out. This is the worst king. He gives, king, he gives Haman his ring. 
And Haman literally has the power to do everything the king would do. He can issue or order anything. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote those Lord of the Rings movies, he says this, The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. So for Haman, the idea of being praised by the king is the biggest thing in the world. Last week, when we spent time with, with Esther and Mordecai, here's what we see them do. They deliver Xerxes from death. And here, in chapter 3, that we're summarizing quickly, though they delivered him from death, he has just delivered both of them to death. So, we're looking into chapter 4, and we're hoping and to see God in the midst of this blurriness. Blurry things. So, moving to Lake Jackson and living here for two and a half years, there are certain things that I'm still unaccustomed to. When I put my sunglasses on inside of my house and I walk outside, you can't see anything. I need a stick. When you sit in your car and you turn on the air conditioner, the humidity from the outside is combustible and you can't see anything. It's this blurry thing going on. So we read through the book of Esther and I want us to be careful to clear the shield and see where God is. So go with me to chapter 4. Let's read that together. When Mordecai, I'm in the CSB as I read from the Bible that I hold. So when Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and he put on ashes. He went to the middle of the city. And he cried loudly and bitterly, but he only went as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. Now there was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted. They wept. They lamented. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and they reported the news to her. And the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept him. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened as well as the exact amount of money, 32 million, Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jewish people. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hathak came and he repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and, and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal official officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not, who has not been summoned. That is the death penalty. Unless the king extends the golden scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days Esther's response was reported to Mordecai Mordecai told the messenger to Esther told the messenger to reply to Esther don't think that you will escape 
the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from, one, from another place. But you and your family's family, they will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went, and he did everything Esther had commanded him. question that I would love for all of us to ask ourselves this morning and this week. Am I willing to be a part of what God is doing? The text starts off and it tells us that Mordecai responded to the order that Haman would wipe out all of the Jewish people by sitting at the king's gate wearing nothing but sackcloth and ashes. Now, if you are unfamiliar with sackcloth, it is not a comfortable fabric. That's why people mourned in it. You don't mourn in comfortable things. Think potato sack to carry your things. If you are unfamiliar with a potato sack, that is something that is far removed from you. Uh, think about it like this. This sackcloth was what was used to make sacks. That's why it's called that. They're not a confusing people. And as they put this together, it, it would be, for context, if you wore clothes that were made of grocery bags. So think that you took the plastic and you assembled clothes. So when I'm in high school, there were guys who wrestled. I don't even know if we do wrestling here. But wrestling was a big deal in the southeast. And I had friends who loved to wrestle. And the way that they would cut weight, cut, cutting weight is illegal and it's frowned upon. And the coaches told all of them to do it. And cutting weight took place when you would put on a garbage bag so that you would lose weight, dehydrate yourself so that you could wrestle at a lower weight class. There is nothing comfortable about that. That's why I did not wrestle. I watched professional wrestling and I could hit you with the chair incredibly well. But I did not wrestle in high school. They would wear these, these plastic bags to prepare themselves for something. The Jewish people in this passage who have just heard that there is a person in charge of all of the land aside from the king who is going to wipe them out respond to it by wearing sackcloth and ashes. They covered their faces with this. Well, what were they broken over? They are going to die. Now, what I, when I look into Esther chapter 4 and I read the story of what King Xerxes has established here, you notice in verse 2 that they could only go as far as the king's gate. I find that unique, that we have a king in this passage who is so far removed from his people. He is considered to be the most powerful man in all of the world. And if you are going to be the most powerful man in all of the world, you would want to make sure that you care for those subjects who are underneath you if you are a good king in any way, shape, or form. You would want to care about their brokenness. You would want to meet their needs. You would have a desire to see them provided for. That's how I think that a king should work. But this king has signed off on his duties. And in a world where he has just declared that so many people are going to be assassinated. 
even though he does not know who these people actually are, if we're just going with a strict reading of chapter 3, he has established a rule or is continuing to live by a rule that says that you can only come so far with your mourning because he does not want to be bothered with your sadness. And if we're not careful, we can take the idea of bad kings that we see in the Bible and place uh, their characteristics on our God. When we look into this passage, we see King Xerxes. History tells us about King Xerxes that he, when he, when they wrote down the history of the Persian people, that he, it's communicated that he was almost seven feet tall in a world where people were not very far above five foot eight. He wanted you to think that he was bigger than he was. I find it ironic that we have chosen to live in a world and we read a passage where kings are presented and presidents are presented and rulers are presented as bigger than they are. As celebrities who they seem to be bigger than they are. If you've ever watched a movie, you have more than likely noticed that a person seems to be taller than they actually are. And then you see Tom Cruise sitting on Oprah's couch and he's five foot one. We like to think of people as bigger than they are, where in contrast, I think that we don't see God for how big He actually is. So you look at this text and you see Xerxes who has said, I cannot have your mourning anywhere near me. I don't want you to undo my vibe. I don't want you to make me feel bad about myself. I want that very far from me. But if we're not careful, when we read this passage, we may miss that oftentimes we're very much like Xerxes. How much are we trying to remove ourselves from the brokenness of the world that we happen to live in? How sad and how difficult is it for us when we think about the plights of people in our world who are in, that they do that they cannot control? When we consider the fact that we live in a country where abortion is growing in its popularity, are we broken over abortion? When we look at the needs of... Because abortion is not necessarily one group of people. It spans across multiple levels of our society. When we look at those who are financially restricted and in difficult situations to the point that they would have to make this horrific, terrible, sinful decision, are we broken over the need that they may have in their own life? Do we see them as void of the hope that, that we are saying that we provide in Jesus? When we look at the situations around our world where people are impoverished, where people are starving, when we look at every aspect of the world that we happen to live in and we begin to consider all that is taking place, are we people who are very much like King Xerxes who have chosen to separate ourselves from those very needs? To say that it is removed from us. And if you would say, no, of course I'm broken over those things. Then I would like to ask for you and for me, when is the last time that I donned symbolic sackcloth and ashes? When is the last time that I felt a need to weep over the brokenness of society? When is the last time that we had conversations with those around us that there is a hope that we believe that is provided by Jesus? Do we find ourselves... Seeing the needs around us and seeking to meet those needs. What are we broken over?
Are we broken over those that we spend our time with each day? Are we broken over our neighbors? Uh, he went as far as the king's gate. Verse 4, you see that Esther, again, this is a story of a princess, but it's a story of a princess that has its problems. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and they reported the news to her and the queen was overcome with fear. You have Mordecai outside weeping. Mordecai outside mourning. And the response of Esther, according to verse 4, is that she wants to... She is afraid. But by her response to Mordecai, we find out what she's afraid of. She is afraid that this mourning of his would cost him his life or possibly affect her. And the way that she responds to Mordecai is by sending clothes to him to cover up his mourning. Do we hear the voices of those who are mourning around us? Are we aligning our, our ears to the plight of those who are hurting in our world? She wants to cover this up. How much do we want to cover up mourning when it is in our midst? From that point, you get this situation with Esther and Mordecai that's just a go back, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Verse 6, verse 5 rather. Esther summoned Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. It's sad that you have a kingdom where this woman is the actual queen, but she does not even know what the king has decided. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him everything that had happened as well as the exact amount of money Hathak had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai gave him a copy written uh, of the written decree issued in Susa ordering the destruction so that Hasak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to come to the king. If I'm Hathak, either they need to get a cell phone or I need a Fitbit because he goes back and forth for this conversation multiple times. Esther sends him to, to Mordecai. Mordecai sends him back to Esther. Esther sends him back to Mordecai. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. A go, no go-between. Mordecai gets the copy, and, and, and here's what Mordecai says through Hathak to his cousin Esther. Look, this king, if he's going to listen to anyone, he's going to listen to you. You've been given influence, you've been given power, you've been placed in a royal position. You are one of the most important people in the kingdom. Aside from the king, you matter more than anyone. He has to listen to you. But Esther's afraid that he may not want to listen to her. Because we're no longer remembering the timetable in the infatuation stage of their relationship. 
We're no longer in the place where uh, King Xerxes cannot get enough of Esther. As a matter of fact, what we find is that she has not been in his presence for 30 days. But if you're the king and you're Xerxes and you, you are telling everyone that you're 7 foot 5 or whatever, if she's not there with you, that means that someone else is. So... Esther is afraid that she is in a similar position to the position of Vashti that we find in chapter 1. That she has fallen out of favor of the king and that no one, no one would ever listen to her. And if she makes the wrong amount of noise or if she decides to say the wrong amount of things, that she will be banished in the same way that Vashti was. And why would she ever give up all of her comforts for the sake of the salvation of an entire group of people? Why would I risk all that I have for the sake of them? Again, if we're asking questions among ourselves and we're looking at the world that we live in, we're looking at the, the needs of those, both physical and spiritual, of those we spend our time with and those we come in contact with, how often are we asking the same question without asking it? At least Esther's having the conversation. I don't know that I can always say that about myself. I don't know that we can always say that about ourselves. Am I looking? Am I thinking? Am I considering? Am I working through what will take place if those who I love never come to faith in Jesus? Am I considering? Am I wrestling with what will take place if we never choose to meet the needs of those who are starving? Am I considering the needs of the world that God has placed me in? One pastor says, God does not call us to be comfortable. God calls us to trust Him. And He tells us that He's with us. One of the grand promises of the Bible is that God is with us. It's streamed from Genesis to the book of Revelation. The promise of God that He is with us declared triumphantly and in its highest place in the person of Jesus. God does not call us to be comfortable. God calls us to trust Him and tells us that He's with us. God calls us to put ourselves in situations where we are in trouble if He does not come through. Are we doing that? I ask you that. I ask myself that. Am I putting myself in situations where I would be in the worst situation if God doesn't come through? Is that the type of trust that we are placing in our God to carry us through? Mordecai told the messenger in verse 13, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, a relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place altogether. But you and your father's family, they'll be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps, maybe, just maybe, you have come to this place, to this royal position, for such a time as this. If you know one verse in Esther, it's this one. We, we memorize it. We, we can buy prints of it at Hobby Lobby. If you want to get really fancy, they'll frame it for you. We love to think about this. And, and, and what Mordecai says in this passage is very reflective of a partial truth that we cling to as God's people. 
that God has everything under control. And we believe that. If you don't believe that, then you have a short-sighted view of the God that we see in Scripture. There is a shadow of this here. You actually see it from the words of Mordecai. Look, someone's going to rescue these people. Someone's going to care for these people. Someone's going to take care of the Jewish people. God has some, everything under control. We, you notice that when he says, If you keep silent, relief and deliverance, they'll come to the Jewish people from another place. Well, why? Because God's always been working about the declaration of who His Messiah is from the very beginning, and He's woven that through the trials and the sufferings of the Jews from the very beginning of Scripture. I'm going to be God, and I'm going to show myself as God through this Messiah. I'll do that. But in your immediate situation, Esther, I just want you to know this. There's a problem if you don't speak up for you. I wonder sometimes if we look at the idea of God having everything under control and for whatever reason we believe that negates any activity on our part. And if that's what's happening in my heart and in your heart when I consider God being under control, then the God who I believe has everything under control is not the God of the Bible. Because God does, He does have everything under control, but over and over, completely as we look into the Bible, God gives active direction for His people as to how to respond to the commands that He gives. What God can do does not change what He would have me to do. Right? This is where I ask for interaction. We don't get our direction from our understanding of sovereignty, we get our direction from Scripture. And God has given us ideas from His Word over and over as to how that looks. Love your neighbor as yourself. Make disciples. Care for those who are around you. The Bible tells us all of these things. The Apostle Paul, when he is speaking at Athens, he says this about you and I and where we've been placed at this point in history. He says, And God made man from every nation of, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Look, guys, we are where we are for a reason. If you've ever thought you would be better at another point in history, God has you where you are. I've always found myself to be a great samurai. That's probably not true. But when we read through the Bible, we see that God is saying you are where you are, when you are, why you are, because I put you there. So you're where you are for God's purposes. Love your neighbor, make disciples, care for those that you come in contact with. Those are just a few of the pictures that Scripture gives us. Have conversations about who your God is because your God is good enough to talk about. We're swimmers at our house and we don't have a pool. We have a, a two-foot pool in our backyard that I make my kids play in and at some point one of them is going to throw another into the brick wall and it's going to be problematic. But there is a pool back there. They also swim. We, we all, They go to the pool. They, they race and those type of things. And it's good exercise. That's what you've always been told about swimming, right? Anybody you grew up, swimming is the best kind of exercise. If you're ever reading fitness magazines or for whatever reason you get redirected to a fitness article on the internet, you see that you are supposed to swim because it's 
it's the best exercise. It's not bad on your joints. So there's a day where I'm out in the pool with the children and I've been doing what dads do, just sitting there. Occasionally they'll come to me and I'll throw them and then I'll say, go away for a little bit. Then they'll come back and throw them. That's what we do. Alder wears a float so I can throw him however far I want. Back and forth. And at the end of it, I realize I've swam a few days that week. I've multiple times that week. And I'm telling Hope, I'm not as tired as I think that I should be. And she said, Chad, when they tell you that swimming is good exercise, that means that you're actually swimming, not lounging around in the pool with a diet Mountain Dew. Those are different things altogether. Many of us call ourselves followers of Jesus. And we would say that we're doing the things that Jesus would have us to do and being the people that Jesus would have us to be. Yet for whatever reason, our interpretation of doing what God has called me to do and being what God has called me to be equates to me just sitting on the steps of a pool. And I'm calling something something that it's not. If God tells us over and over in the Bible that we are to care about these things, then it seems that he would want us to be interacting with those things. Because as we've looked in the scripture and we walk through the book of Hebrews as a church together, faith in the Hebrew, the Hebrew concept of faith is a verb. It's active. How active is our faith? How much trust are we putting in the Lord You've been called to this position for this very time. Time's a, a... We all claim that we need more time. It, it, it's interesting when we look at time, how we say we don't have any, and we also consume more mass media than any generation before us. Uh, we have our phone reminding us now how long we've been on social media through the week. It sets an, There's an alert that's there that you can turn off. We claim to not have time, yet we've got all of this time. You can't borrow time from someone else. You can't make time. We can only do two things with the time that we've been given. You can either spend it wisely or you can waste it. As followers of Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, am I spending my time wisely based upon what God has taught me and what God has shown me about himself? That does not mean that everything that you do should be you standing on a street corner preaching at people. Uh, but it does mean for us as believers in Jesus that we would see the opportunities that surround us and we would say we've been put in the position that we're in for such a time as this. Esther just so happened to be in the... Uh, kingdom of Persia. You just so happen to be teaching school starting this week. Or, or, or maybe you, you will be selling three or four homes this week. There's a chance that you'll be at work and you'll be having a conversation with a co-worker who you really don't want to be around this week. There will be things that happen for us through this week that we have to consider and we have to ask ourselves, am I doing with that time what the Lord would have me to do with it? Am I thinking about that time the way the Lord would have me to think about it? Am I considering that interaction the way that God would want me to consider that interaction? Am I thinking about these things in the way that God would think about these things? 
We give you a devotion, and I want you to know there are better devotions. But I do believe that God calling Jared and myself to pastor our church and to lead you at, at a time like this, that we would encourage and we would ask you to spend time in this so that you're not thinking about benign things from the devotion that you've been given from a pastor in Minnesota or New York City or New York City or Dallas or wherever. But that as we look at this devotion together, we're considering the context that we've been given, the place that we've been called, the people that we've been brought into this into circle with. And we would ask and we would consider and we would pray, God, w- would you give me opportunity to, be, to show you? Would you give me opportunity to speak of you? Would you give me chances to declare how good you are? If there's a need, God, would you show me how I best can meet it based upon what you've given me? God, I want to be your person. I want to be a person who lives for your sake. I want to risk what you would have me to risk. I want you to, to gain what you would have me to gain. I want to do what you would have me to do. Who knows that you've been brought to where you are, when you are, why you are for a time very much like this. You're here because God has placed you there. What are you doing with the time he's given you? Esther hears these words of Mordecai through Hathak because she never went out there. In verse 16, you go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and you fast for me. Look, we never mention God in the book. We never mention prayer in the book. There are no religious rituals mentioned in the book. There's, there are no Jewish festivals mentioned in, in, in this portion of the book. The, the closest thing we get to a spiritual situation in the book of Esther happens when we talk about fasting. And the reason that I believe that this is talking about fasting and praying is if you are not praying, then fasting is just not eating. That's a terrible way to spend not eating. But for them, as they think about fasting, God says, or God's word says to us, you have them fast for me. And then she defines for them what fasting is. Don't eat or don't drink for three days. And I and my female servants, we're going to fast in the same way. After that, I'll go to this king. This king who may kill me. This king who could wipe me out. This king who may not even love me. And if I perish... I perish. This week I encourage you as a family of faith to spend time in your Esther devotion and to consider all of the things that we see in 3 and 4 and how those things are similar, very similar to the way that we look at them. When I do this devotion, it's very difficult for me because I feel like Dory in Finding Nemo. I'm just having a conversation with myself because I wrote it. But as you look at this, I would encourage you just to think through, okay, what is God going to teach us as a people when we read through these things and consider our worlds together? Because if you notice, Esther has circled her, encircled herself with people to fast with her. And, Zer, and Mordecai, she's instructed him, circle yourself with people who will fast with you. Let's make sure that we're doing this together so that the salvation of these people will take place. So please, 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 this week, if you're a member of Grace Bible, I encourage you to spend time in God's Word. And, and as you spend time in God's Word, thinking about what He's teaching us every Sunday, just think through these devotions about where God has placed you, where God has put you, because we are where we are, when we are, while we are, for us such a time as this. You don't have to be the Queen of Persia. None of us are. To have an impact on the world that God has placed you in. And and even now, I would think that some of us are hearing this and we, we are defined by our past. Thank God that He does not define us by our past. 
God defines us through what He has done in the past so that we can have His future. God has done a work in our hearts and in our lives for those who are believers where He would say to you, don't be held back by whatever it was that you're thinking should hold you back, but I want you to move forward because I've given you opportunity and I've given you ability to do so. We're not defined by what we've done. We're defined by what He's done. And because of what He's done, we can know what we are to do. So we go forward and we look and we would say, I can't let these things be what gets to say who I am because Jesus says that. His Word says that. And His Word says that we're ministers of reconciliation. Are we seeking to reconcile? His Word says that we are... We are a royal priesthood. Are we going on behalf of others as representations of Jesus? His word says that we are a holy people, that we're a divine nation. God's word says numerous things about us. What if we chose these next few weeks to consider heavily what it means for us to be those things? So I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. Maybe you're here and you've never placed your trust in Jesus and... God is choosing to meet you in this passage, ironically, uniquely, in a passage that does not mention Him. But your life doesn't have Him right now, so that's a good place that He would be loud enough to speak through that. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, it's, it's not the simplest thing, but it, God does give us things to think about. If you've never trusted in Christ and want to place your trust in Christ today... Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you to save me. I need you to rescue me. I need you to give hope to me. I need you, Jesus. Because you're in the position of the Jewish people who need a Savior in Esther. And the only one who can save is Jesus. Jesus, I want to place my trust in you because my sin will lead to death. And I want the life that you offer. If you prayed that, or something like that this morning, for the first time, I would love to meet with you. That can either be at the back of the room or you can take the card we talked about earlier and say, I trusted in Jesus today. And if you write that on the card, we're going to follow up with you as quickly as possible. Secondly, I, I, I believe that if you're a believer in this room, you're very much like Esther because I'm very much like Esther in When I'm looking at all that it will cost and all that it will mean if I choose to risk. Would we trust that God is in control enough to give you the words to say to your coworker? give you the prayer to pray for your classmate or for the student who's in your room. But we trust that God is 
done enough for us that we could care for the hurting who are around us. What will we do with this time? This is such a time as this that we've been given. Lord, we do need you to continue to speak to us this morning. And as we sing to you, I pray that our heart would it will be a, a time for our heart to cry out to you. Well, let us care what we did not happen to care when we walked in this room today. We ask it in Jesus' name. I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room if you need me.